Let's pray. Our Father, now as we have turned our attention to your word, we ask for your help, that your spirit would come, that your spirit would be enlightening our hearts as we focus on your word, what you say here. Uh, Lord, help us. Help us to respond in the appropriate way to what you say. Particularly, Father, we pray for faith to believe this word and that our faith in what you say, what you promise, will then shape how we live in our lives. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A good number of you are, are like me in that uh, you have lived a good portion of your lives prior to everyone carrying around a device that keeps you in constant communication with anyone else in the world, basically. Uh, for those of you uh, who were not yet alive back in the 1900s, which is what my kids uh, refer to them as, the 1900s, uh, then just listen and learn a little history lesson uh, this morning. Back in, back in those days, back in the 1900s, uh, when I was young, uh, when my parents uh, would leave my sisters and I home, um, maybe for an evening or for a Sunday afternoon or, or for a, a day or two, uh, we were never certain of, of the time, the exact time, when they would return home again. You know, they might be gone for an hour. They might be uh, gone for um, several hours late into the night. or we, we just never knew for sure when they'd be arriving back home because we didn't have these devices where they could just you know, send us a text message and let us know exactly down to the minute you know, when they would be arriving. And looking back on that, I would have really appreciated my mom and dad you know, being able to send me a quick message as they were, as they were leaving the wedding that they were attending or leaving uh, the, the, the meeting that they were a part of or whatever else they were, they were doing at the time and, and then giving me that, that heads up be home about 20 minutes. Let me tell you, there were a handful of times when uh, my sisters and I saw the headlights coming down uh, our road from the highway and we had to scramble, scramble to uh, get done whatever it was that they had asked us uh, to, 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 to accomplish uh, while they were away or put things away that we probably hadn't, uh, we should, probably shouldn't have had, had out um, at the time. So it would have, been, would have been really nice to have been able to, you know, be a little more prepared for when they would have returned. You'd have thought, of course, that, that not knowing when exactly they would arrive back home would have, you know, would have motivated us to make sure that we were always ready, that we were always ready of their appearing. But the problem was we always kind of just assumed that, oh, we have plenty of time. Uh, we have plenty of time. And we always thought we had plenty of time to prepare. That is, of course, until we didn't, until it was too late. And it is similar for us in regards to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, everybody wants to know when. When will it be? If we only knew when we could expect him, you know, boy, how our lives would change. Or maybe they wouldn't. See, the reality is we, we don't know when. No, no one does. We just know that he will. 
And yet many people are treating this time of waiting for his return much like I did when I was young, waiting for my parents to return. We, we live like we think we have plenty of time to prepare. But there's a great danger in living like that in regards to the Lord's return. It, it was unwise for me to live that way when my parents were away for a night. And as we see in our passage here in Luke 17, it is outright deadly to live that way in regards to the appearing of the Son of Man. Jesus warns us here that, that we ought to be prepared and that if we love and care about others, well, then we ought to seek to help them to be prepared for it as well. So our main theme from these uh, verses here, Luke 17, 20 through 37, uh, the present life of a Christian is to be strongly influenced by the expected return of King Jesus to judge the world. Our passage there begins in verse 20 with some Pharisees asking the Lord that great question of when. Uh, when they could expect the coming of the kingdom of God, you know, which then leads Jesus into a discussion of the kingdom of God and of the coming, as he refers to them as, days of the Son of Man. And that's what this passage is focused on, and I want to spend our time considering uh, four uh, observations that we see here about Christ's expected return. First of all, verses 20 and 21, the kingdom of God is experienced already, and not yet. The kingdom of God is experienced already and not yet. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In the Gospel of Luke, we find that the kingdom of God is one of the primary topics of Jesus' teaching. He taught about the kingdom of God often. Uh, one of his primary messages regarding the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke was that it was near you, or that it was at hand. Or on one occasion, he said that there were some standing there with him who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So it's not a surprise that Jesus would receive such a question like he does from the Pharisees here. After all, the kingdom of God was one of his favorite subjects. And it can be understood that the rest of the passage, even in chapter 18, verse 8, is Jesus' response or his answer to the Pharisees' question. So let's notice his initial response here in verse 20. Um, again, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now the Pharisees, like so many others, uh, may have been anticipating great signs and wonders to appear in the skies or a grand defeat of the Romans um, or something that would be clear to them and everyone else that God's everlasting kingdom had come. Uh, maybe they were anticipating something like we have in the United States every four years um, on January 20th, you know, on Inauguration Day, when, when thousands of people gather in our capital, Washington, D.C., at the uh, United States Capitol building, and every major media network televises 
the newly elected president taking the oath of office and making his inauguration speech. And then, of course, in recent times, the next thing the new president does is he runs and goes and signs a bunch of executive orders, you know, uh, changing everything from the last administration. Uh, all that clearly lets everyone know the country is now under a new administration. It's under new leadership. It has now begun. But Jesus tells the Pharisees here, the kingdom of God is not coming in that kind of way. He says, not in ways that can be observed. Instead, Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And that's present tense. It's already here. It is here. It is in the midst of of you. He was not just, just saying the kingdom of God was within their hearts. No, no, he was, he was saying, in a sense, the kingdom of God was already there, you know, in the middle of them, right there in front of them. He was telling them the kingdom of God had already come, but in a way, that was not so obvious to them. So just consider the Christmas story, you know, when, when the Magi followed the star looking for the baby king that was born. Where did they go? Where did they go? Well, of course, they went to the place where they would expect the baby king to be, to the palace in Jerusalem. That's, that's where they expected uh, to find the king, but he wasn't there. No, the king was born in this small rural village and not in a palace. He was born in a stable, and he wasn't laid in some soft, you know, uh, uh, silk royal crib, but he was laid in a feeding trough. His birth wasn't announced throughout the, the cities and the villages of the kingdom, but instead it was announced just to a few shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks in the middle of the night. And then, of course, this, this young king grew up uh, not in a palace. He, he didn't receive the attention of the nation or the press. As he grew up, you know, no one cared about how he spent his time, uh, what his interests were, or who he was, rumor, he was rumored to be dating, you know, like Prince William and Prince Harry had to uh, grow up with. No, no, he grew up a nobody in a tiny rural village in the home of a carpenter. And then one day, around the age of 30, he began to teach, and he traveled around other little villages, particularly those surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and a few people began to follow him, and, and, and they saw him do some pretty remarkable things, you know, setting people free from demonic possession, healing people with different kinds of sicknesses, cleansing people who had leprosy, even raising the dead to life again. And when they saw these amazing works done by this man, they all thought these have got to be the works of the kingdom. He was restoring the things which had been harmed by sin. He was leading people to repentance and faith in God. Oh yes, the king was definitely present and active. And in that sense, the kingdom was already being experienced by all those who came to believe and follow Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed king. And it is the same today. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
for all of you who have come to believe in Jesus that he is the king, that he is truly the only way of salvation, and you have willingly submitted to his authority over your lives, well, you have been welcomed then into the kingdom of God. The king is at work calling more people to himself through people like you, through the church. People who are are being set free from their slavery to sin. Lives are being restored to spiritual life through their faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is here. It is being experienced already. But as we see in the rest of this passage, it has definitely not yet come in all its fullness. The kingdom is already and not yet. The kingdom as we are experiencing it now is not obvious to everyone, but one day it will be. Our second observation, verses 22 through 25 here, believers will endure suffering prior to Christ's return. Verses 22 through 25 again. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus then turns to his disciples and uh, tells them that they will experience a time when they will greatly desire to see the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Son of Man, the days of the Son of Man, but they will not see it. What Jesus is referring to here is his second coming, uh, when he will come to usher in the kingdom in its fullness, in an an obvious way, and in a way that will be observed by all and recognized by all, when no one alive will be able to ignore it. And these will be hard days for the disciples when they want to see it, when they long to see it. They will long for the Lord's return. Uh, But Jesus told them back in in Luke 12, you want to just flip back to Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. He said there, uh, to the disciples, uh, regarding these, these hard, hard days when they want to see the, the, the king come, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you, you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be facing uh, challenges. They're going to um, suffer. These first followers of Jesus would face great suffering. All but one of the apostles would, would, would face martyrdom. They would be executed because they identified with Jesus. And the one who wasn't uh, martyred uh, was exiled and, and died imprisoned. So there would definitely be days when they would long for the coming of the Son of Man. They would long They'd yearn for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the days are coming when you will desire, you will yearn to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And I think those days have come for us. Am I right? Are we in those days? We're yearning for 
the return of the Lord. I mean, let, let's face it, the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world has had to endure some very difficult days in these past two years. Haven't you longed for the Lord to come? Haven't you wished that he would, he would just come and put an end to all this foolishness that we've had to endure? Not to mention the great persecutions of our brothers and sisters in Asia, in the Middle East. As we've experienced here in the States, when, when tough times come upon the church, in these hard days, and we begin to really long for the Lord's coming, well, we become more susceptible to listen to those who say to us, look here, or look, look there. Look, I've got it figured out. Or I heard this guy uh, on YouTube or on, the, on, the, on, the, on this podcast, and he really seems to know what he's talking about. He, really, he says you know, that all these events, they're setting up the Lord's return. It's all coming together. It must be the end times. We better listen to what he says. You don't want to miss this. You know, look here, look there. Well, friends, it is in times of suffering and trial that we are most susceptible to following people like that who are fools. They are fools because Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then here in Luke 17, Jesus assures us, don't worry, you're not going to miss it. My coming will not be a secret coming. Look at verse 24 there again. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. A few weeks ago in early August, I was outside one evening, and it looked to me like storms were coming. Uh, lightning was flashing in the southern sky um, here, and, and it would flash, and then the whole sky above, you know, would, would just light up for a split second. And, uh, you know, just, just by my observations of the lightning of the, of, of the sky, I assumed the storm is probably just a few miles south of Stanton here. Maybe it's over Highway 32, you know. That's what I was thinking. And then I opened up my, my weather app on my phone and looked at the radar and soon realized that I was just a bit off with my forecast. Uh, the storm was actually south of David City at that time, 60 miles away. And it was lighting up the whole sky. Almost all of northeast Nebraska could see it. And it says here, his coming will be something that everyone will see. If you are still around at that time, you will not miss it. But as Jesus again warns, before the glory of his coming, he had to endure great suffering on the cross. Verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Uh, there, of course, he's clearly identifying himself with the Son of Man. He is, Jesus is, the Son of Man. Before there can be a resurrection, Jesus says there must be a death before we can experience the glory of the coming of the kingdom, the church must endure great suffering. And that's why we see the exhortation throughout the book of, of Revelation for endurance for the believers. We must endure in our faith, 
trust in his promises, and if we do, we will experience the glory of being with the Lord when he reigns upon the earth. Uh, Third observation now, Christ's return will be sudden, unpredictable, and inescapable. His return will be sudden, unpredictable, and inescapable. Uh, That's what Jesus is is describing here by directly comparing his return to the days of Noah and the flood, as well as the days of Lot um, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Those were the days when God's judgment fell upon wicked, sinful humanity suddenly and inescapably. And, and, And the days of the Son of Man, he says, will be similar. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So consider how Jesus described what the people were like in the days of Noah here. You know, what was it like for the people of Sodom uh, when the angels came to rescue Lot and his family out of the city uh, before the fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Well, they're just living their day-to-day lives, just eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting and building, even celebrating uh, special events in their family, such as weddings. Uh, but they're doing it all without any thought of God. Doing it all without any thought of their impending doom. The people were completely secular. They had no fear of God and absolutely no concern for the coming judgment that the Lord would bring on their sin and rebellion against him. Completely secular. God's not a part of their experience. God's not a part of their lives. And that sounds kind of familiar to us in this culture. So let's take a step back here quickly and remind ourselves what Jesus is referring to when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a reference that the Pharisees and disciples of Jesus would have recognized immediately as coming from the prophet Daniel. Uh, In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in in our Bibles, uh, the prophet is given a vision of what he describes as one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and being presented before God. And God gave the Son of Man the kingdom, an everlasting dominion. Uh, And this comes after a vision that Daniel has of God on the throne, sitting down for judgment, and it says, the books were opened. And so it appears that God was giving the authority to judge to the Son of Man. He's got the authority. He's got the kingdom. He's got dominion. And when Jesus mentions the days of the the Son of Man here, he's referring to the coming days of his return to judge and having the kingdom of God fully realized and restored upon the earth. So the Son of Man points to the coming reign of the Son of God 
upon the earth. And Jesus is definitely referring to the days of the Son of Man as days of judgment. Days of judgment. Judgment is going to fall in these days upon the earth. Uh, Just like the days of Noah and the flood uh, and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment is going to fall. Notice there in verse 27 and verse 29, Jesus says that the judgment of the flood and the fire destroyed them all. That is, it destroyed all those who were unprepared for the Lord's judgment. Those who were living secular lives, who lived like God and his word, were of absolutely no consequence to them or their families whatsoever. And Jesus wants his disciples to hear this and know this so that they will not be like the people who perished in the days of Noah and in the days of Sodom. He warns them how to avoid God's judgment. And he's warning us this morning. He's warning us. You know, on that day, verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What Jesus is saying there is is our treasure is not to be in this fallen world. He's pointing to our hearts here, to our affections. He's warning us that if our hearts are full of the things of this world, then we'll be just like Lot's wife, who while she was being rescued out of Sodom, while she's being led away from the destruction, after being warned not to look back, she sadly does and immediately turns into a pillar of salt revealing that her heart had been taken up not with God and his salvation, but with what she had to leave behind in Sodom. Her longing for for that condemned city ended up being her destruction. And it will be the same for us if our affections are taken up with this condemned world and the things of this world. The Apostle John, in in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17, uh, points this out for us, if I can find it here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that is the desires of the flesh, the, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If if your heart is with the world and the world is passing away, then you too will be destroyed along with the world. Our hearts must be with God. Why would we long for and desire this fallen world when, when Christ offers us a kingdom where there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more dying, There'll be no more sin. Why would we long for a world that that hates righteousness when Jesus offers us a new world where we will get to be with him in his presence forever and ever and ever, being transformed and being fully righteous, fully holy, 
along with Jesus. You see, Jesus wants us to know being a part of the kingdom of God is more than just escaping wrath. It is receiving eternal life from the hand of the Son of Man. And whoever receives that life can no longer yearn for this life in this sin-filled world. Again, verse 33 of our, of our passage, Luke, in Luke 17. Um, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. And the fourth uh, uh, observation here, Christ's return will bring about the sudden separation of those who are prepared for judgment and those who are not. Uh, verses 34 through 37. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they, will, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So friends, let's just admit that these are frightening verses. And we are not to hear what Jesus says casually or callously. This will be a very traumatic and devastating event that is coming. And so many people are unprepared for it. So here in these verses, Jesus reiterates a reality that he has already introduced before in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, where Jesus says there, uh, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division Father against son, mother against daughter. So Jesus once again illustrates this division between even family members as those who are believers will at the time of the Lord's coming be separated from members of their own families who do not belong to Christ by faith. One will be taken, it says, and the other left in the home while they're both sleeping or during the day while they're going about their daily routine. It's going to come suddenly. One will be taken and the other left. When the disciples ask the Lord where, he gives them this, this strange answer uh, in verse 37. It's, it's like a proverb. He says, where the corpse is, there the, the vultures will gather. Again, Jesus seems to be pointing to the devastating judgment that will fall upon the world in these days. There will be corpses. So Christ's coming will, will, will cause this great disruption in the world, even among intimate relationships, within families, within marriages, within uh, relationships with, with our coworkers, uh, our friendships with others. One will be taken and the other left. Uh, just recall again Noah and his family. Uh, the day finally came when the Lord told Noah to enter the ark. And he and his family entered the ark, and then once the Lord shut the door of the ark behind them, they were forever separated from the rest of unbelieving humanity, who were then destroyed by the flood of God's judgment. While Noah's family, who, who believed God's word, were saved inside the ark, the rest of humanity were, were wiped away. Or, 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 or when Lot and his daughters believed the warning of the angels and, and left their home in Sodom. Uh, once they had left the city, they were forever separated from their wicked neighbors and friends within the city. 
as God's fiery judgment rained down upon it, destroying them all, it says. We're, we're even told in, in that passage in, in Genesis 19, we're even told there of the separation of his daughters from the men whom they were going to marry. These men laughed at Lot's warning to them to leave the city before it would be destroyed. So it, it's like the beginning of one of the most famous books in all of literary history next to the Bible. That is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, where the main character in, in, in that story, Christian, um, after finding and reading a Bible, learns that his home, which is called the City of Destruction, is about to be destroyed by God's judgment. And so Christian decides that he must flee the city. He tries to convince his wife and his friends to come with him, but they mock him. They deride him, they refuse to go, and so he ends up running away from the city towards the wicked, the, the wicked gate to begin his journey towards the celestial city. And all the while, his friends and family were calling after him to stay put, stay there with them, telling him how foolish it was what he was doing. And so Christian put his hands over his ears and ran off motivating himself by telling himself, life, life, eternal life. That's what he's running towards. So friend, the main application, the main question that comes to us from this teaching here is are you prepared for the days of the Son of Man? Are you living in such a way that you know that judgment is going to fall upon the earth? Unbelief and unrighteousness will be judged and God's wrath will come upon all who have refused to repent, who have refused to come, whose affections have been for this fallen world and not for Christ. And with the time that we have left, let us work, let us labor let us be devoted to honoring our Lord by obeying his mission for us to make disciples of the Lord Jesus, to urge our children, our loved ones, our neighbors, and even those in far off lands through missionary endeavors to repent and believe the gospel in order to prepare them for the days of the Son of Man. So rather than being separated from them when he comes, we may instead, together along with them, rejoice and be welcomed into the celestial city, into eternal life. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, we, we ask for your help. We ask that you would have mercy on us and that you would work in the hearts of everyone here that we all would be prepared for the coming of the Son of Man. We pray, Lord, that you would help us also to have a desire in our hearts to see our friends, to see our loved ones there with us and to do what, what we can to pray, uh, to share, uh, to point them to Jesus so that they too could come to faith and believe and be saved. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.